0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Pearls of Wellness, brought to you by the Center for African American Health. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. In this month's episode, we'll be going into part one of the Pearls of Wellness education series with our special guest, Dr. Rosemary Allen. Today, we're going to talk about America's preschool to prison pipeline. Thank you so much for tuning in to this important, timely discussion. Today, I'm so honored to have Dr. Rosemarie Allen with us. She has been a hero of mine since we first met, I think it was years ago. I was at Qualistar Early Learning, working on quality early childcare. And you, I remember hearing about your work in the context of equity training, even way back then.
1: Can you introduce yourself
0: for our audience, please?
1: I am Rosemary Allen. I'm currently an associate professor at Metropolitan State University of Denver and also the founder, president, and CEO for the Institute for Racial Equity and Excellence. Very, very excited to be here.
0: One of the goals of this podcast is to really discuss and dive into the various social determinants of health and how important they are to living a healthy lifestyle. Um, this is one of a couple conversations we're having around education. And for me, early education is one of those realms that not only people take for granted, but they really don't understand or misunderstand the huge opportunity is to set children off on a wonderful trajectory if they have everything they need. However, years ago, I remember, um, you know, so many people have their own stories about how they were affected, but I was shocked when I learned just how many Black children were being expelled in preschool. Who, who would have thought that was happening?
1: Right, right. You know what's so amazing about this, the data and what it's telling us about how young children are suspended and how often they're suspended. And we're seeing children suspended beginning at eight months of age, mm. and usually just for being babies. The top two reasons are crying and biting. And we know that children that age, they cry and they bite. It's kind of like it's their job until they learn to handle big emotions, until they learn to be more verbal and be able to express themselves more appropriately. And we also know that children are suspended very, very often. When we look at the data, especially Walter Gilliam's work, we know that children, especially preschool children, are suspended three times more than kindergartners through 12th graders. And Deidre, that's only state-funded preschool. When we add in the rate of suspension for family child care homes and child care centers, that number is astronomical. As a matter of fact, we see every single day at least 250 preschoolers being suspended from their early childhood programs.
0: And do they do they end up bouncing around to different places? Are they left without care? Clearly, their needs aren't being looked into.
1: Absolutely. First, I wanna say that we know that suspensions do nothing to correct behavior. They actually add to the problem because children who are suspended are three times, I'm sorry, 10 times more likely to enter the juvenile justice system, more likely to disengage from their entire learning experiences. So when you ask what happens to them, just imagine a baby is kicked out of their program at eight months for crying, and then they're kicked out at two for saying no and throwing tantrums. They're kicked out at three perhaps for fighting. They can be kicked out of the four-year-old program for hitting. So by the time that child gets to kindergarten, they have already learned that school is not a, a safe space for them. They've already learned that they are quote unquote bad and that teachers really don't like them. And this just sets them off this whole trajectory of, of uh, like a downward spiral of what happens to a child over the course of their academic career, because one of the greatest factors for being suspended is having been suspended before.
0: Mm.
1: They're like on a treadmill of suspensions and expulsions, and then as they get older, referrals to law enforcement.
0: So, so of the suspension examples you gave, Every, every one of those things you kind of expect a, a baby to do, like each one is developmentally appropriate. Yet when it comes to our kids, it's suddenly a, an excuse to end their education or disrupt their education.
1: Absolutely. And this is where implicit bias and racism comes in because I tell teachers all the time that behavior is a social construct and it's defined by the person who's most annoyed by it. So as teachers, as adults, we have to get in touch with the lens through which we see children and their behavior. There was a study where teachers were asked to watch a video clip of four children playing at a table, a white girl, white boy, black girl, black boy, and they were asked to press a button anytime they saw a behavior that could potentially become a challenging behavior. And what the participants didn't know was that there were no challenging behaviors at all in the video clip. They also were not aware that eye tracking devices were being used so that the researchers could track the eyes of the participant to see which child they they gazed at the most no surprise to us, the black boy was watched more than any other child. And 40% of the teachers even said that he required most of their attention. Mm -hmm. And there was no behaviors. All the children were engaged in the same level of behaviors. So that's the bias. Um, When we look at what teachers expect from children, how they view and respond to the behaviors of Black children. And then we also have to be concerned about what this does to a child. What happens to the child whose name is called all day? Just imagine a Connor. Connor, stop. Connor, don't. Connor, don't make me have to come over there. Connor, what are you doing now? Connor, sit next to me. What does that do to a child. When we talk about social determinants of health, even in their early childhood programs, they're experiencing stress and adverse childhood experiences right in their own classrooms. And second to that is that the other children are learning how to teach how to treat and interact with black children. So this cycle is, it goes on for generations.
0: Can you share a little bit about um, what the term adultification means and how it's relevant?
1: Absolutely. Studies show that Black boys are taught to be, um, thought, let me start that over. Studies show that Black boys are thought to be four and a half years older than they are, even by teachers who know and understand child development. So that means a three-year-old is believed to be seven and a half. And when children are thought to be older, they're held to a higher standard. So they lose the innocence of childhood. They're not allowed this wonderful time in their lives where they can explore and experiment and be curious and make mistakes without being held culpable for those mistakes. So that's part of adultification with black boys, with black girls. They're thought to need less nurturing. They're not comforted as often. They're hypersexualized and their needs are not met. So imagine these young children who are robbed of the opportunity
0: just to be children. Mm. So if I'm a classroom teacher and I've got A child in my room. I know their age. Mm -hmm. You know their
1: age intellectually, Mm -hmm. but how you respond to that child emotionally. One of the things that I teach my pre-service students is to never use the term you know better than that. So even when they know the child is three, because of adultification, they expect the child to behave at a higher level and sometimes we call that the expectation gap, where we know that three-year-olds are highly impulsive. They are testy. They like to try and test all the boundaries. That's typical three-year-old behavior. So what happens when that three-year-old is a black boy and he's testing the boundaries, which is what all three-year-olds do? That child is not given the benefit of being three. But held to this higher standard, so everything about the child, in terms of behavior, becomes amplified because it's seen through that adultification
0: lens. That's heartbreaking, but it makes it makes so much sense when you think about you know ways you can break a child's spirit. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I've personally, you know, for years I was always. Um, I took the teaching, the teacher's perspective kind of as a given. Oh, they're doing their best, they're doing this and that. And while my sons were older and they had their encounter with um, traumatic educational experiences in middle school, I'm really struck at this age and day. I understand, you know, there's a huge um, increase in our community doing homeschooling. Yes. And I can see why. And it's, you know, part of it, you want to make sure a child gets all that they need to get, especially to be kindergarten ready or ready for that next phase when they enter the system. But you also want them to be protected because there are a lot of teachers out there that are actually causing the trauma.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um we when we look at the ACES questionnaire, the adverse childhood experiences questionnaire there are 10 questions. And if four of those questions are answered, yes, then your lifetime outcomes are diminished. And what struck me was that all of those questions relate to the home. Were you hit at home? Did people make you feel useless at home? Did your parents put you down? And I began to think about that. And I was wondering, well, Trauma can happen everywhere, but for Black children, trauma mostly happens at school. Children are diminished at school. They're attacked at school. They're ignored at school. They receive harsh punishment and harsh treatment at school. So we have to look at trauma wherever it occurs and mitigate the trauma that's experienced by really working with our pre-service teachers, with those teachers who are already in the field and help them to understand how they view children and how they especially view black children, given that black children, especially black boys, are the most suspended children in all of America.
0: Mm. So I also imagine where You're a working parent, your child is suspended. If you're already stressed out, this isn't going to help. Are there different, is there something a parent can do if they're caught in this dynamic and they know it doesn't feel right? Is there, what would you recommend?
1: Well, you first, I say, believe your child and look for the, the unspoken. When my child was in an environment that was not healthy for him, there were things happening, Deidre, that he couldn't explain. For instance, when I put him into a new school, he said, Mommy, when I hugged my teacher, she didn't do this. And he shrugged away, sort of pushed away. I had no idea that when he went to hug his teacher that she would push him away. I knew that he was not happy in that classroom and I knew and saw his joy diminished. He just didn't exhibit the joy that I saw on the weekends and at home. So I would say to families to really look for the joy. Is your child happy? Are they experiencing joy? And if they're not, to dig dig deeper. I would also say Like I said before, believe your child. So if the child says, well, everyone else did it, don't say what our parents used to say. Well, if everyone jumps off the bridge, are you going to do that? Mm -hmm. No, that is not the answer, especially for Black children, because they may be being punished for the exact same behavior that their white friends are not punished for. And that's borne out in research, that Black children are more likely to be disciplined suspended or expelled for the exact same behavior that their white peers engage in so we have to be vigilant show up all the time oh and another thing i want parents to be very careful of do not ask teachers for a negative report on your child so many times if we get a negative report you know, if you and you receive the negative report, for instance, the, the child hit my child hit your child hit someone today. The next day, oh, they hit someone again, and you take care of it at home. You talk to the child about using their words and other strategies. Don't go back the next day and say, "Did he hit someone?" Mm-hmm. how how did my child do today? And this is a rosemaryism, but I believe that by doing that, we're setting the teachers up to look for the negative behavior, right? to report. Instead, say, oh, tell me the wonderful things my child did today. Tell me what they really enjoyed today. Tell me my child's greatest success today. And believe it or not, that shifts the lens so that teacher is now looking for the great things your child's doing, rather than the negative things.
0: And by changing that framework, Hopefully it helps them as a teacher, but I think it also underscores the fact that they realize you as a parent are engaged in watching.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, it's my hope that as parents ask more of those questions, the teacher begins to see these children, all children, through a wonderful positive lens, rather than looking for the negativity, or relying on stereotypes we have to remember that many of the teachers that are working in early childhood are not racially matched. Many of them do not live in the neighborhood, and lots of them have not had many rea- um, interactions with diverse.
0: Can you repeat that last sentence? You went in and out a bit.
1: Yes, and many of the teaching staff, the workforce have not had a lot of interactions with diverse populations.
0: You know, and I find that so interesting only from the standpoint, not, not the fact, I find that understandable, but, you know, if, if I were in that profession, it wouldn't occur to me not to want to learn more about the children that I was caring for I remember years ago um, I was a program officer at a health foundation and I was doing some work with an early childhood um, council in the northern part of our state and she was sharing with me she had a lot of Somali parents Mm -hmm. and it was really interesting for me to hear that one of the ways they adapted was culturally um, if a woman's changing a Somali boy's diaper he could not be on his back. So they had to change the diaper standing up. And, I, and that just struck me as interesting, but what I really appreciated from her perspective was her understanding, I'm serving this family, I'm caring for their child. What do I need to do to make sure I'm meeting their needs? I think it's, this, it's been a journey for me, and I think it took parenting and then the work that I do I'm to the point now where I would require people to have certain trainings before, before Black children are exposed to them.
1: It's, it's absolutely necessary. We're more segregated today than we ever were before Brown versus Board of Education. And we don't know each other very well. So the dependence on stereotypes becomes very, very um, amplified. And unless you take the time to get to know families after you've received anti-bias, anti-racist trainings, then you can subject children to a very, very unhealthy environment. For instance, at MSU Denver, they have to take courses on um, cultural, what, what is it called? At MSU Denver, they must take a course called Cultural Socialization of Young Children, where they learn about child-rearing practices, the cultural dynamics of diverse populations, and then the follow-up course to that is Teaching for Social Justice, where they learn about systemic racism and its impact on children and families. They also have a field experience where they're working in a very, very diverse population where English is not the dominant language and where Farsi, Spanish, and Hmong is being spoken um, predominantly. And this allows the students to really get some of that firsthand experience. But what we offer is not offered nationwide. And like you said, it should be a requirement because not knowing these things can actually cause harm. And what's so amazing is that people don't know what they don't know. They just see everything through their own cultural lens and own social location, and then everyone else is judged through that same lens.
0: And it's challenging enough when you have two adults trying to learn about each other, let alone a small child that can't speak or represent itself.
1: Absolutely. I remember when I moved to Colorado from California and my one of one of my first jobs was in Parker, Colorado. I ran the child care facility there. And in my family, when an adult calls you, you come. So if my mom called me Rosemary, the answer is yes, or coming and I come to see what they want. Just my family's cultural practice. Imagine my surprise when I was running the facility at Park in Parker and I called a child, Hunter. And he said, what?
0: Oh my goodness.
1: Yes, that was my response. Like what in the world? So I called him again, Hunter. He goes, what? And I thought, surely this child is not going to say what to me again. And I marched over with my hands on my hips, looked in his little face, and I said, Hunter. And the way he looked at me, he said, what? You keep calling me. What do you want? And it was at that moment I realized that there was a cultural misalignment. I expected him to come see what I wanted. And he expected me to tell him what I wanted. And I realized in that moment, it wasn't good or bad or right or wrong, but it was different. And our expectations were different. And that is what happens, especially in diverse populations with white teachers, every day, all day long. Cultural misalignments and misinterpretations of children's cultural ways of being as being defiant.
0: You know, it's interesting because there. I feel like there's so many different little examples of that throughout our lives. Mm-hmm. Cause I was raised into the same thing at home, not only respond, but respond immediately. <laughs> yes. And then, you know, just to this day, I've never called my mother by her first name when I'm talking to her.
1: Oh, never, ever. <laughs>
0: and it's a familial thing where I even catch myself reacting these days because very young children will often do that. They they don't tend to be black children. But just how do you calibrate yourself? Because you're realizing, oh, this is just the household this young young person comes from. It's not a disrespect, right? And so, how do you kind of balance that out? Uh, could you talk a little bit more about? So you mentioned this requirement at Metro, which mm-hmm. is fantastic, and you know Metro is yet another system that's producing professionals. How did that? Get started? How did they look and decide, you know what, this is a need and we need to meet this need? We're going to start this additional programming.
1: Right. Um, And I think it started with the whole multiculturalism movement when we first started thinking about children living in a multicultural world and we needed to develop cultural competence, if you remember those terms we used to Mm -hmm. use. And as the world evolved, we, we began to realize that we needed to go a little deeper and I came on board in 2004 and that class was one of the classes that I taught and I realized in so many ways we were missing the mark because first we were defining everything um, that was diverse or multicultural as not white and it promoted this belief that white people did not have a culture so we really shifted that to make sure that everyone understood that they're, that everyone is a cultural being. And that led us to help the adults understand how culture impacted their worldview, their perspective. So that's, that's how that started, and as we began to really look at the data around disproportionality, the disparities, suspension rates, and digging deeper into why these things are happening, and really identifying that the first step to any suspension or expulsion is with the teacher, and what are the factors that lead a teacher to want to kick a child out of their classroom, either permanently or temporarily, and once we identified those factors is to really teach to those factors, to prevent. Mm-hmm. So we began to really look at prevention. But again, the first step in all of this is self-awareness, helping teachers understand who they are. This dialogue we just had together about our, our family's expectations. You, you call adults by a title. You answer them. Those, that's the way we were brought up. But we may not be teaching children who share that cultural lens, as in my case with Hunter. So then we learn that there are so many different ways, cultural ways of being for children and families, that we have to accept it and not judge it as deficit, but to just see it as different.
0: Can you speak a little bit about um, the national work that you do?
1: Um, Yes, I travel all over the country, and I work with school districts, state departments of education, um, standalone childcare programs, and we provide anti-racist, anti-bias training, and we implement a lot of equity work. Before the murder of George Floyd, we did a lot of one-and-dones. People will call and ask for training, and we do it. But after the murder, we began to, to to really notice. That we needed to approach this work at a much deeper systemic level. So now, most all of our programs, we first conduct an equity audit, and we survey staff, families, administrators, to really determine um, equitable practices, practices that are inequitable, and where there are gaps, where their gaps are. We also assess the mission values and vision of the organization to determine if they're living their mission out loud. Are you who you say you are? If people want to, we look at their hiring practices, especially if they have a goal to become more diverse, and we provide anti-bias, anti-racist hiring practices. So once the equity audit is completed, we go over the results with the the agency, and then we develop an equity plan. And that plan includes training and support. So for all the training, and it's either a one, two, or three-year commitment, and um, the trainings run from 5 to 15, and after each training, we have follow-up sessions to really support the participants in implementing what they know, and we also have reflection sessions, so they can recreate a very safe environment, so people can talk about um, where their their struggles lie. the issues they may have implementing the anti-bias strategies and any of the successes that they have. And we are seeing the needle move because at the end of that contracted period, around 18 months to two years, sometimes three, we we do a follow-up equity audit to see where the needle moved and what strategies were most successful in getting those results.
0: And when you do this work, because you also mentioned districts, is it with the early childhood providers or teachers of older children as well?
1: Sometimes it's the entire district and the entire school. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and it really depends on um, on the contractor what they want. Mm-hmm. We also um, work with state departments of ed- education around early intervention, um, Illinois. Oregon right now, they are finding that Black and brown families are not accessing early intervention services. And early intervention services are services that are guaranteed under IDEA Part B and Part C, where young children who are identified as having special needs to get a free and appropriate public education. But again, diverse families are not accessing the system. So we have gone into these states, held focus groups, um, examined the existing data to try to find out what's going on to determine why black and brown families are not using early intervention.
0: You know it's interesting because what I what I do know at least in Colorado about some of the Part C services is things like they require the screening in the home. Sometimes things are often during the work day. So you have put yourself out of work, get your child out of school to get there. Um, but I also imagine there's some bias issues as well as not accommodating people's real work life.
1: Absolutely not accommodating, not understanding, language barriers. Um, And you know, some of these families have experienced trauma. So there's the the suspicion, the provider suspension, I'm sorry, provider suspicion that the families are very um, suspicious because when you come to the home, they don't know if you're social services, family visitor, and the messaging isn't always clear about why you're there or what kind of services are being offered. And then the services are very, very fragmented. And then sometimes it's a workforce issue where you don't have the people who are willing to go into some of these historically underserved areas to provide the services.
0: You know, I'll never forget um, when I was in philanthropy, I was meeting with a group that was a, a nurse home visiting group that was meeting with me because I couldn't figure out why Um, or my question to them was, why aren't you seeing more Black families? And the response to me was, well, you know, we don't have enough nurses um, that are African-American, which is understandable given the pipeline challenges. But what threw me, and then what I realized was the norm, was when they told me, oftentimes we'll have an appointment with a family and either the first one doesn't go well or... They won't let us send our they won't let us into their home so we know we assume that means they must be involved in child welfare and it just shocked me because I and I told her you know if I don't know you you're not coming into my home so why are you automatically demonizing this family versus just asking them what makes you comfortable and how can we meet you and meet the needs of your child
1: absolutely and that's the problem and with implicit bias, with stereotypes, and just the overall perception of Black families. And we talk a lot about this because you hear people say, oh, we want to do more home visits. And I always ask, do families want home visits? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Have you talked to them? Do they want you in their homes? Before we decide to do this, because you think it's such a great idea, why don't we talk to the families and see what they would like? Just like you said, those visits don't have to take place at home. They can take place at the library, in a park, at the barbershop, mm-hmm. you know, talking to families and finding out where they're most comfortable. And this is what we're finding in our focus groups, that the families feel that they have to change everything to fit into the program, rather than the program accommodating their needs.
0: So in your work across the nation, are you, are you seeing any hopeful trends?
1: I am. You know, I I know that there's not a teacher, administrator, principal, teacher's aide who could come into this field to suspend, uh, mistreat, or expel children. And I feel that everyone would like to know how to do this better. And because the majority of our workforce is so open that I'm seeing them take this to heart and really implement these strategies. It's really amazing to me after trainings when people say, I notice now, I notice When I'm going up that ladder of inference, some of the training, we talk about how fast we go up the ladder of of inference and that's where bias lives. And we encourage them to acknowledge when they're going up the ladder, when they notice they've gone up the ladder and to share when they've gone up the ladder. And it's opened the safe space to say, I am absolutely biased and I'm catching myself. Mm -hmm. And that's where the change begins. It's halfway. We still have a lot of work to do, but I am very helpful, and I'm seeing people embrace this work and implement these strategies.
0: And we've touched on a little bit. One of the things we always like to do toward the end of our conversations, since we talk a lot about what's so wrong with some of these systems that we have to navigate, Are some of the solutions, one of them, you're actively involved in with really helping systems reflect and do better. Are there other solutions if you're a concerned parent or even a teacher or someone to make early education a safe space for black children?
1: Absolutely. Um, Dr. Darielle um, she, she she's researching black joy. And I'm absolutely loving, loving, loving her work about promoting Black joy. We know what's going wrong, but how do we counter it and promote joy in the classroom for Black children? And one of the ways, let me just go over some of the strategies that she's pointing out. First, she wants us to be clear that we're not sweeping anything under the rug and we are aware of everything that's going on and all of the disparities and the, the, the disparate treatment of black children. But we have to promote black joy in our classrooms to ensure a healthy environment for children. And you already talked about some of the reasons, the anti-Black racism, the, the adultification of Black boys and girls. So what are some of the things that we can do? And she talks about these four elements of Black joy. It's Black brilliance, Black innovation, Black agency, and Black beauty. And to make sure children can live authentically in those four elements. But when you think about Black brilliance, how do we promote it? because sometimes Deidre, that black brilliance is misunderstood and labeled behavior, challenging behavior. So many times I've seen black boys get in trouble because they're not using playground equipment safely. They'll go on top of the climbing structure and jump off and go up the slide rather than down the slide. And that is a part of black innovation perhaps we need to look at the equipment and realize it's not challenging the children. Mm -hmm. And how do we change that so that these children can be innovative and be challenged in a way that's also safe? Black agency. Oh my goodness, we spend so much time controlling black bodies. Sit down, crisscross applesauce, put a bubble in your mouth, stand in line. I ask teachers all the time, why do children stand in line? Well, because they're going outside. Is there another way they can get outside rather than standing in line? What happens if every meeting I hold, I tell you to stand in line at the door before you come in? It's, it's unnatural. And it's just another way to police bodies. And then the Black beauty is to make sure that your environment is a mirror to the children in your classroom, that they should see themselves represented in positive ways all over the classroom and not just as athletes and entertainers. So that's a big, big part of promoting Black joy. And then another um, strategy is supporting children's expression of diverse emotions. And children express emotions differently. Some children have really big emotions, some children do not. Some children are very expressive with colorful words and some are not. Another way is to make sure that your language is aligned with what children are accustomed to at home. There are some cultures where demands are phrased as questions, where a parent might say, oh, do you think it's time to go to bed now? And that family, it may be understood that that really means it's time to go to bed. But for children of color, directives are usually coined as directives. It's time to go to bed, brush your teeth, and I'll begin to read you a story. So what happens when you get to school and the teacher asks, well, do you think you should sit down now? The child might say, no, I don't want to. And that may be viewed as defiant rather than saying, it's time to sit down and get ready for lunch. You see the difference there?
0: Right, because the question actually wasn't asked.
1: Right, right. And the other part of this is respecting cultural parenting practices and celebrating racial pride. So promoting joy, I think is going to be the greatest thing that we can do to ensure a happy, healthy environment, classroom environment for Black children.
0: And I think you know, we mentioned earlier um, the fact that all children in that classroom are watching.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So just as the non-Black children witness a Black child being targeted, if it's a joyful classroom, they're going to witness that joy as well.
1: Absolutely. And they'll witness it and experience it. Mm-hmm. Because you're when you promote Black joy, the entire classroom becomes joyful. But people say, well, why black joy? Because if you first, we have to center blackness. And why? Because on every single indicator, every single indicator of child well being, black children are at the very bottom. So if we don't center blackness to address those at the very bottom, if we begin to pluck from the middle, they may never ever be reached. And we have a precedent for this. When you look at the civil rights movement, that was a Black-led movement. But look at what it led to for all rights, women's rights, gay rights, trans rights, everyone's rights. When we look at Brown versus Board of Education, that was a, a, a decision for a Black child to attend school, to be integrated into America's school systems. But that led the way and opened the doors for IDEA and other rights. So, when we center Blackness, everyone then benefits.
0: That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Allen. Um, two things I want to, that really resonated with me, is always believe your child mm-hmm. and promoting Black joy. I think that should happen not only in the classroom, but at home, at work, any environment that we're in if we can. Absolutely. And thank you for what you're doing now, um, for what you've done over the years. Your name, to me, has always been equivalent to equity for our young children in spaces that would not see them.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you you for the opportunity to share this. And I'm just so thankful that you are willing to have these conversations and to explore these issues and to impact change so that we can all grow through this.
0: If folks wanna learn more information about your organization um, and the work that you do, or maybe contact you to work with their employers, how can they reach you? Well, um,
1: the best way is my website, rosemaryallen.com. And that will also lead you to the Center for Equity and Excellence and also Irieinc.com. That's the Institute for Racial Equity and Excellence. And that is I-R-E-E-I-N-C.com.
0: Well, that's our show for today. Our next episode will be part two of the Pearls of Wellness Education Series. I'll be speaking with Dr. Janice Mackey about the ways in which we need to reimagine our higher education systems. You know, my discussion with Dr. Allen reminded me of my favorite poem, Hello Black Child, by the Harlem Renaissance poet, County Cullen. Hey, Black child, do you know who you are? Who you really are? Do you know you can be what you wanna be if you try to be? you can be? Hey, black child, do you know where you're going? Where you're really going? Do you know you can learn what you want to learn if you try to learn what you can learn? Hey, black child, do you know you are strong? I mean really strong. Do you know you can do what you want to do if you try to do what you can do? Hey, Black Child, be what you can be. Learn what you must learn. Do what you can do. And tomorrow, your nation will be what you want it to be. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm your host, Deidre Johnson. Remember, we're living in systems that were imagined by other people for us. Now is the time for us to reimagine systems with us in mind that work for us everything can be transformed so design the life that you want to live